Uh, we're opening our Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I heard a quote recently, pretty simple quote. It said, if you spend five minutes complaining, you've wasted five minutes. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I waste a lot of five minutes. In fact, Katie hasn't amen to sermon for a long time, but when I said last service that I complain a lot, she shouted out amen to the whole room. <laughs> five minutes here, five minutes there, five minutes gone. We're looking at New Year right now, of course, and some of us make New Year resolutions. I'm a firm believer that resolutions tend to fail. It's better to create habits. Well, let me just say this when it comes to habits. Complaining is a habit you don't want to form. Because when you form that as a habit, you become a still person. Still person. Still broke. Still complaining. Still hating. Still going nowhere. I've been reading through the Bible, and one of the habits I've done over the years is just read the Bible cover to cover. I find that that, for me, is a Bible habit just works for whatever reason. And a couple of months ago, I'm making my way through the book of Exodus again. And it's incredible to see all of the complaining that flows out of God's miraculous work as He brings the people of Israel out of the land of captivity. You look at the story, and God takes the most powerful ruler on earth at that time, and He whips him around like a rag doll. Uh, he doesn't just humble Pharaoh, He breaks Pharaoh. And shortly after that deliverance, the people are what? Grumbling, complaining, murmuring. Moses, where's the meat? Moses, are we there yet? Moses, who died and made you boss? Complaining, complaining, complaining. Well, if you've read this story, they didn't just waste five minutes of their time. They wasted 40 years wandering in the wilderness due to their complaining. Now, why? Why did they complain why do we complain? I want to suggest that there's a spiritual issue that's at the core of it. I think we complain for two reasons. One reason is we forget what God has done. The second reason is we can't see what God's currently doing. So here you have two symptoms, right, or two conditions, spiritual amnesia and spiritual blindness. What if we went just 24 hours and didn't complain? And what I mean here is not once, like no complaining whatsoever. I bet you we'd probably start remembering a little better, start seeing a little better that God's at work. Now, how this ties into what we're going to be looking at today is we're approaching the next phase of David's life. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if anyone had any excuse to complain, it was David. I mean, here you have a guy, his star had risen, he had just conquered Goliath the giant, and he comes back from this high that he's on, and because of one song, one song that was meant to be like an encouraging song, they're walking back victoriously into the cities, one song caused David to become an enemy of the state. It will mark the beginning of a period of his life 
where he's constantly on the run. Yet, David never complains. He never shakes his fist at God. Why? Well, I think it's because David had a good memory and David could see God at work. He knew God was walking with him. He knew God was providing. So let's look at the story. That's chapter 18. We're looking at verses 1 through 16 together this morning. It picks up, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever he went. So that Saul sent him over set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Uh, He raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. I want to recognize in these verses, and really we'll be looking at 18 and 19 together, we'll summarize some of that, three great provisions that God gives to David even while this man is about to go on the run. The first provision we see clearly is a true friend, a true spiritual friend in the person of Jonathan. Now, the irony, even as we look at this, is that Jonathan, of course, is Saul's own son. He becomes a true friend of David. The passage says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as he loved his own soul. As I think about this, it makes sense and it 
doesn't make sense for some reasons. For makes sense because here you have two young, courageous guys who, of course, have won great victories in battle. You, you could see where a friendship would form on the basis of mutual admiration. But in other ways, the friendship doesn't seem to make sense. And just as easily as they could have become friends, they could have become rivals. It was only in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel where Jonathan was the national hero. He was the one who brought about a great victory. And now he's going to be living in the shadow of David for the rest of his life. In addition to that, David's also a rival to the crown. Now, it's quite surprising and incredible what the text tells us Jonathan does here. It says that he loved David, he made a covenant with David, and he also gave him his military gear. Now, here's why that's significance. The clothes signify the person and his position. So Jonathan is doing nothing less than renouncing his position as crown prince, and he's transferring the right of succession over to David here. I don't know about you, but as I think about that, and as I understand this culture, people just didn't do things like that. You didn't help out the upcomer. You eliminated him in this culture. It makes about as much sense as this. Say you have a real estate deal going. You're selling your house. Someone offers you $70,000 above your asking price, but you decide to come up with the brilliant idea of counter-offering and you take the offer and you take it $15,000 below the asking price. Who would do that? Who would give away the money? Who would give away the power? Who would give away the influence? Well, Jonathan does. We learn a couple of things about him. The first thing we learn is Jonathan is different than his dad. His dad loved the power, he loved the prestige, and he loved the people who never questioned him. Jonathan, on the other hand, loves something different. You see, Jonathan loves God's will more than he loves his own advancement. That's what we're coming to find about this man's character. He loves God's will. This drew him to be a loyal friend to David. He could see the hand of God was upon David, and he said, you know what? This guy is good for Israel. This guy is good for God's purposes. I'm going to align myself and be a friend to this guy. And this turns out to be one of God's great provisions to David here at this point in his life. I've come to realize with some age and experience that one of God's greatest provisions in my life, one of His greatest provisions in your life is the people He places around you. It's the people. Now, we struggle with this in our culture. We live in a self-directed, independent, I know what's best for me type of culture. This is especially true of men. I've said this before. But men, more and more, are lonely. They don't have friends. They have acquaintances. They have buddies that they do things with. But they don't have a true friend like what we're seeing here in this passage. In fact, 
Some men read this passage and they feel uncomfortable around the friendship of David and Jonathan. But I'll tell you, you can't go it alone. David needed Jonathan and God drew them together because both of them loved God and they loved God's will. And that's the true criteria for a real friendship. You need to be that kind of friend and you need that kind of friend in your life. It's also important to note that while we need that, it's all too uncommon. Chuck Swindoll said this, intimate friends are rare in life. Often we only have one, occasionally two, usually no more than three in our entire lives. And friendship is meant to not just be a rare commodity, but it's also a, it's a, a dynamic in your life that can go deep. A lot of friendships kind of just rest at the surface. Well, we share common interests, common hobbies. They know how to make me laugh. But here's the thing. A friendship only goes as deep as the foundation upon which it is built. So when you build a friendship on something deeper, like the mission of God, like I love God's ways, I love God's purposes, I love seeing God's work done, those are the friendships that stand the test of time. Those are the kind of friendships where maybe you even spend 10 years apart, but then you come back and it's like you never missed a beat together. How is Jonathan this kind of friend? Well, Jonathan's this kind of friend because he's willing to make himself lesser. That's what a real friend does. I love these words from S.G. DeGraff. He says, this deed on his part giving up the robes, the armor, the crown. It was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be lesser. So a friend on mission cares more about God's will than they do about the spotlight. And that's the kind of friend we need, and that's the kind of provision that God gives us in one another if we'll be that friend to one another. Let's look at another provision from God. Another provision that we see is God provides David the benefits of sakal. Now, what is sakal? Sakal is a Hebrew word. Uh, here, the word is in the verb form in this passage. You'll see it four times. The word is translated four times as success. You probably heard it as we were reading the passage. Let me just read a couple the instances of it to give you a flavor of the word. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Verse 14, David had success in all of his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. Verse 15, and Saul saw that he had great success. He stood in fearful awe of him, David. Verse 30, then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. So here we see in chapter 18 that David is a Sakal man. It's emphasized time and again. Now, the term doesn't just simply mean something like, wow, things were really going well for David. He just had good fortune all along the way. He's a military prodigy. Look at this guy. No, it's a theologically loaded term. The fuller meaning is this, the person 
who finds prosperity or good success because they carefully consider God's ways and God's deeds. That's the call. The, the Sakal life is wise living with God at the foundation of it. The Proverbs begins by saying this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, meaning that you can't even start on the pathway of wisdom until you're willing to acknowledge that God is the foundation of it all. So here's what it means, knowing God, trusting God, considering God in what you do, even fearing God is the starting point for wise decision-making that leads to real success. Now, as you look at the Proverbs you, you're given some glimpses in what this Sakal lifestyle looks like. Proverbs 10.19, for example, it says this, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is Sakal. Prudent. Oh, so the Bible's telling me that I would come across smarter if I just shut my mouth more often? Precisely! precisely. Like a stream of words actually isn't intelligent. Maybe we shouldn't film ourselves on social media just talking about whatever we think in the moment. This call person keeps a confidence. She has a friend come and tell her something, and the friend says, please don't share this with another person, and she shuts the trap. Or he has the Wisdom and understanding the situational awareness to know they don't need to tell me not to share that with anyone else. I know better than that. The Sakal person, of course, uses their words carefully. He avoids harming others with his words. Here's another example of it. In Proverbs, we also learn that Sakal is a person who is teachable. When a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. When a wise man is sakal, instructed, he gains knowledge. So the Bible tells us that no matter how many promotions you get along the way, no matter how many people are standing around you and they're saying, oh, your ideas are the best, you can do nothing wrong. You've never reached a place where you don't have to be teachable. You always need people around you. You always need to have your ears open. You should never have your mind made up without considering others' opinions, weighing those opinions. And one of the problems in our culture, especially here in the Northeast, is we like the expression, no one can tell me what to do. I don't need anyone's opinion. I know how to raise my kids. I know how to drive my car. I know how to get things done. Here's the thing, you don't. You don't. That's not biblical wisdom, that's not Sakal, and God can't bless it. And I love that in the story, David and Saul are contrasted because David is Sakal and Saul is not. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, after making a, a decision to sacrifice the animals before Samuel arrives, Samuel says, you have behaved 
foolishly. Now, when we hear that word foolish in the Bible, it does not mean a lack of brain cells. A person can be incredibly smart, sophisticated, and foolish all at the same time, according to the Bible. Foolishness in the Bible means that I make my decisions with no consideration for God. Now, someone might just outright say that. Proverbs 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or they kind of quietly operate from the same worldview. So Saul was like that. He was rebellious against God, but he was polite as he did it. Oh God, I know that you said I should wait until Samuel arrives for me to sacrifice these animals, but I think that's not best for Israel right now. I'm going to do my own thing, which by the way is still rebellion. However you slice it, it's rebellion. Not David. David's not like that. He's different. Verses 14 and 15 again said David had success in all of his undertakings. Why? The Lord was with him. He was Sakal. The difference couldn't be clearer. God prospering all that he does because David wisely lives the way God wants him to live. And it was infectious. Verse 16 says that all of Israel and Judea loved David. You know, when you live the Sakal lifestyle, it is infectious. People admire it. People might not even share your worldview, but they see the quality of life because you're living a Sakal life. And they want to be around you or they want to understand what you're doing that's different. That's David, of course, in this passage. Everyone loves David. It's repeated multiple times. David's loved by Jonathan, loved by Michael, loved by Judea and Israel. In fact, there's only one person who doesn't love David. Saul. Now let's pause for a minute from looking at the provisions and consider the hatred. Again, all began because of one Saul song. Verse 7, the women sang to one another, Saul has struck down his thousand. I don't know how to put that to a song, but it went something like that, you can imagine. Now, upon first glance, you, you look at that and you're like, yeah, that's probably not the best idea. He gets into the city and you're singing about how he killed less people than David. Why would you do that? Well, if you understand the Hebrew poetry, there's really no deliberate comparison being made here. They were linking Saul and David together in the victory. The convention of putting a number in the first line and then kind of beefing that number up in the second line, very common for this kind of poetry. So it's basically as if they were saying this, Saul and David have struck down their thousands and ten thousands. And they even put Saul in the first position, which means the place of priority. Now listen to how Saul interprets the poem. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. What an insecure, bitter, petty response to the song. It's a good old-fashioned grudge. Grudge. Let me just say this. 
If you are holding on to a grudge, you have got to find a way to give it up to God. Get rid of it. Get off of it. Right or wrong, I don't care. Get away from it. It ruined Saul's life. It ruined the lives of the people that he supposedly loved. What do you think it's doing for you right now? Nothing. At least nothing good. Now David is oblivious to the jealousy and hatred. I I read the story and I kind of laugh a little bit. I'm like, he throws one spear at you so you go back a second time? Like, what are you doing, David? Well, he's been ministering to Saul for some time now and there's been this growing madness. So there's this sense that all the staff around Saul walked on eggshells. He's a dangerous guy, probably not malicious. He's just losing it a little bit, but they couldn't have been more wrong. He wanted David dead. So instead of outright trying to kill him, he decides to change his strategy, plots a couple of different plots along the way. One of his plots is to give David a military position. Now, this is not for a pay increase. It's not for a promotion. Saul's thought was this. He expresses it. Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. He's betting on the law of averages here. More battles means he's more likely to die. But there was a big problem. The little squirt keeps going out and winning. I mean, imagine that. So then what does he do? Well, he tries to marry him off to one of his daughters. First one doesn't work out. Second daughter, Michael, he says, I'll give her to you for the gruesome bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, don't ask me why he asked for that. I don't want to know. But the price really represented danger. Not sending him into that situation so he can marry off his daughter. He wants David dead. As we're watching this story unfold, you can kind of have a secular mindset about it or you can have a theological mindset. The secular mindset's like, David's like Captain America. This guy's a boss, right? He goes out into battle. He's got his shield. He makes it happen. And he's pretty lucky because there's all these traps set around him and he misses all of the traps. That's not theological. No, the theological mind knows that God is quietly protecting David from danger of which David is unaware Chapter 18 is placing two realities side by side, Saul's growing hatred, God's quiet protection, and God's protection is far stronger than Saul's hatred. That's what's happening in this story. Now, is that just written for David's sake? Of course not. All of God's word is written so that me and you, the believer, might learn from it. And here's what it implies to us, too that God is constantly protecting his people in ways that you can see, in ways that you cannot see. Now, you might chalk it up to luck or good fortune or dumbest of all, your own abilities. But I'm telling you, that's not theologically sound. That's not biblical. No, the biblical worldview says that God is your refuge. God is your strong tower. God is your safety net. 
Now, what do I learn about God's protection from this passage? Well, there's a couple of things. One thing that you can learn about his protection is that it's normally difficult to see in the moment, and it's much easier to see it when you look back. Consider David's story. He's totally unaware of Saul's intentions, but I'll tell you what, when he looks back, he understands that God had his back. What about you? Can you look back over your life and see the fingerprints of God? Maybe it was that fatal wreck that you avoided. I remember I'm a grade school kid walking to school with my brothers. We make it to the school grounds and not less than five feet in front of us, a car swerves and just takes out the fence in front of us. I remember being in fifth grade thinking, wow, had I started this walk four seconds earlier, I'd be a pancake. Was that dumb luck? Was that happenstance? If you want to take it as that, that's, that's your choice. I don't take it that way. What about, what about that significant decision that you were going to make that God protected you from? You thought it was the right decision. You understood it, that it was God's will for your life right now, and you were running headlong into that decision, and then door number one closed, door number two closed, door number three closed. Now, 10 years later, even 20 years later, you look back and you say, thank the Lord, He protected me from that decision. Or what about that friendship The first time you met the person, it just seemed mundane, it seemed normal, it just seemed, you know, like every other day. But now years later, that friend has really rescued you in some significant way. And you look back all those years and think, boy, we could have never have met. God's constantly protecting you, and you have to look backwards sometimes to see the protection. Here's another thing that I see about his protection in the passage. It's diverse. It comes in various forms. I love the different forms of protection I see in the passage. One being Saul's own son is going to be a form of protection for David. Another form of protection, Saul's poor accuracy. Did you ever think about that? I mean, I don't think he missed very often, and yet when it came to hitting David with a spear, he couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Why? Read chapter 19 when you go home today, and you're going to see another form of God's protection. He gives Saul the gift of prophecy. And it's quite an embarrassing story for Saul. Saul finds out that David's hidden in a town. He shows up personally to take care of business, and he completely loses control, prophesying. It says he takes all of his clothes off, he lays on the ground, and he just starts sputtering prophecy for hours on end while David escapes. They even make a proverb about him. Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, do you think that was flattering for him? Of course it wasn't. God's protection is as diverse as God's creative mind, meaning there are unlimited ways that God can protect his people. Finally, we see that God's protection can be ironic. More on this next week. But God uses Saul's own son to protect David. David, or Saul, 
gives one of his daughters to David in marriage in order to harm David. She becomes a form of protection for David. Wow. So are you saying that God can use the things that were intended to harm me to protect me? Yeah. Of course he can. Delroy Davis writes this. He says, Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of the trial. That's David's experience. His trial is going to go on for a long time. He could have found many reasons to complain. He could have shaken his fist at God, but instead he saw that God provided for him in the midst of it. And I wonder if that would change our complaints too. If we just took some time and, again, looked back to see the fingerprints of God. You remember when God protected you? Remember the time when you didn't think you were going to have the money to pay your bills and you didn't have the prospects to pay the bills and, and God took care of you? Do you remember when someone you loved received a cancer diagnosis and and you saw God walking with that person through the diagnosis? Do you remember when you prayed that impossible prayer request and you knew that the only way the request could be answered was if God showed up and He did? Do you remember the time when you were in harm's way and God protected you? Do you remember when he put that friend or mentor in your life, that significant person who's there with you today, still walking with you today, still providing blessing in your life? You see, friends, remembering is what turns complaint into praise. And the big idea of this message, this story is this. God's always providing. He's always protecting He's always with you. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we look at your word, we just must stop and pause in awe of who you are. You are an incredible God. You know the beginning from the end, Lord. You know the the mundane, minute details of our life. You know the big situations too. As we see here in this story with King David, as he's jumping into this season of adversity, you're already protecting him, providing for him, leading. And the same is true of our lives, Lord. You've always been present. You've always been providing. You've always been protecting. You are our refuge. You are our strong tower. You are our shield. Give us the memory of faith to remember. Give us the eyes of faith to see. Turn our complaints into praise. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.